Amen. Thank you. Thank you. There's children's church this morning? No? Okay. All right. We're all going to study the Bible together. Amen. Um, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. And this week we'll be beginning a section in 2 Timothy that really is going to cover three weeks to cover uh, verses 6 through 14. We'll be looking over it in the next three weeks. And we're going to dive in this morning, preparing to courageously serve or prepare to courageously serve. And, and 2 Timothy is such a rich letter. I think part of that being because the Apostle Paul at the end of his life is, he's earnest. He's wearing his heart in his sleeve and he's passionate and he's, he's concerned for Timothy to keep up the work. It, it strikes me as I read this over and over again. Here's an old man in a jail cell, finishing, finished his course, he says, and yet still at work, still laboring, still bring the parchments, bring the scrolls. If there's a day, if there's a month left in my life, Paul's saying, I want it to be useful for the master's service. I think that's just so encouraging. I've done the race, and yet there's more to do. It's incredible. Um, so let's read 2 Timothy 1, 6 to 8. For this reason, I remind you, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Lord God, we just pray that you would help us to use our gifts, that you would help us to be useful to you, that we would not let the gifts that you have given us grow cold and ineffective. Lord, we pray that we would not be ashamed, but that we would boldly share in suffering as well for the sake of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're going to look at our text in three points, the three main imperatives that Paul gives Timothy. And let's dive right in with, with the first one rekindle, rekindle your gift. That's a good translation of the word there. It literally means that to, to fan a flame up, to use bellows or to work a fire so that it, it, it becomes hotter, brighter, bigger. It's, it's noteful to me that whereas last time we were in 2 Timothy, we saw all of them remembering Paul did. If you go back to verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Paul's been remembering a lot. And we talked last time about how this remembering fuels his prayers and it fuels his confidence and fuels his longing to see Timothy. And now, after talking about the remembering he's doing, Paul now turns to remind Timothy to do something. To rekindle the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. And Paul says this for two reasons. The first, for this reason, in, in the very first words of our passage, is because of Timothy's genuine faith. That's where we ended the last passage. He's confident Timothy is a genuine believer, that the genuine faith that was in his grandmother and then in his mother is now passed on to him. 
And so the logic is this. Because Timothy is a believer, Timothy is gifted. All Christians are gifted to serve. If you turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, I think we covered this a little bit in our two-week series on the baptism of the Holy Spirit in tongues. But this is a clear point. If you're a Christian here today, you have been gifted by God to serve in some capacity in his church. So 1 Corinthians 12, let's pick it up in verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Then jump down to verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And I'm just zeroing in on that each one that occurs in verse 7 and occurs in verse 11. And the point is specific. It's not just that some Christians are gifted to serve. All Christians are gifted by the Spirit. And what's the purpose for that gifting? It's at the end of verse 7. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Not only, if you're a Christian here today, have you been gifted by the Spirit, but you've been gifted to serve, to serve the body. God doesn't give us gifts for our own amusement, for our own edification, for our own upbuilding, but rather gifts for the body's upbuilding. Now, we can guess at what Timothy's gift is, probably has something to do with teaching or preaching. It's possibly even evangelism. If you, if you want to turn back to, uh, to 2 Timothy now. It's at the laying on of his hands, and there's some debate as to what that means, because it's likely that Timothy was a believer before he met Paul. The reason I say that is because Paul stressed already at the beginning of this letter about how this passing off of faith from the grandmother to the mother to Timothy, that suggests that he was converted not by Paul, but by his mother. In chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, if we turn there quickly, Paul writes in verse 14, chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 3, 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And when Paul first encounters Timothy in Acts, he's described already as a disciple. So one of two possibilities is going on here. The first is that Timothy was a Jewish believer, but it was the Apostle Paul who brought the news of Jesus Christ to him. And just as we saw in Acts, and we talked about this in the message about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there were those Jews, the disciples of John the Baptist, the apostles, who were genuine believers, who were reconciled with God, and yet had not experienced new covenant blessings. They had not received that upgrade, if you will, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it's possible the Apostle Paul shows up and he tells him about the, the life and the death of Jesus and what it means. And, and Timothy believes and Paul lays hands on him and he receives the Holy Spirit. It's also possible that this laying on of hands refers to an ordination service of some sort um, where when Timothy was to be entrusted with the stewardship of overseeing this church, of putting it in order, that's possible as well. We don't exactly know. And it isn't terribly important that we know. The point is this. God's spirit and gifts can be neglected. They can be neglected. 
that word for kindling. It's the nature of fires to go out. Um, I have a fireplace in my home, and I'll, I'll stoke it before I go to bed, and I'll get it good and hot, and I'll damp it down. But when I get up in the morning, there's embers. And if I leave that and I don't immediately start putting more fuel on and start using the bellows, it'll go out. It's the nature of fire to go out. It's the nature of these gifts that if they're not used, if they're not exercised, they will dwindle. They can be neglected. And that's the, that's the sobering question for us, is are we neglecting our gifts? Do we even know what our gifts are? Are we using them? As Paul is emphatic here that, that Timothy needs to rekindle the gift of God that is in him. God's spirit and gifts can be neglected. He says a similar warning in 1 Timothy 4, 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you, which is probably suggesting the second notion that this is an ordination service. And the important point is this. We are guilty of neglect. And you think of those parables of the guy who buried his talent in the ground. If the gifts the Lord has given us, we're not using. Now, your gifts probably aren't Timothy's gifts, but you have gifts. That's the point I want to make clear this morning. You are gifted. I'm gifted. Everyone here who's a believer is gifted for the common good, and we need to take this charge as well to rekindle and make sure we're continuing to rekindle God's gifts in us. So how do you do that? Well, I think Paul gives us part of the answer in our next point. Um, I think you do that by believing you have one, by being confident that God's gifted you and then using it, which is why Paul goes on to say not only because he's a genuine believer, but also because of the Holy Spirit whom God has given. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And the reasoning is this, stir your fan into flames the gift of God which is in you because God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And this gives us some insight, I think, into how it might be that a, a person like Timothy might let their gift lapse. And it's because of the temptation to fear, or really probably a better translation of the blank here, that the spirit God has given us is not a spirit of cowardice. Not a spirit of cowardice. We're not talking about fear, just sort of anxiety, but really um, a shrinking back, cowardly fear. And the temptation, of course, is if we use our gifts, if we serve, especially if our gifts are speaking gifts, then we might receive the reproach of men. We might become objects of scorn and derision. We might suffer, which is where this passage is headed. And so Paul warns Timothy strongly to fan into flames his gift. And, and Timothy's gift certainly was a public speaking, speaking, teaching gift. And some of the exercise of Timothy's gift involving rebuking people and, and putting aside teachers and all sorts of things that you can imagine how Timothy could be nervous about fulfilling. And so Paul encourages him to believe that the spirit God gave him is not a spirit of cowardice. This, this shrinking back fear. Listen, listen to Hebrews 10:39 But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So shrinking back in, in fear, shrinking back in cowardice is is put in Hebrews 10 as the the opposite of faith. Faith presses us forward. We believe God, we believe his promises, we believe what he has said and so we act with boldness. Fear 
says, no, what if God can't be trusted? No, what if God fails us and we shrink back and our, and our gifts get colder and the body grows weaker? It's not a spirit of cowardice. Paul says something similar in Romans 8, 15. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And here, fear is contrasted with a fear of, of trusting God. No, we've received a spirit of adoption. We're his sons and daughters. If he's given us his son, how will he not also freely give us all things? We can trust him to sustain us. We can trust him to hold us up. We can trust him to guard and protect us. That's not the spirit God, God has given. And in a Pauline pattern where he says a negative, he then states three positives. He does this frequently. It's not this, but this, this, and this. Not a spirit of cowardice, but of power, love, and self-control. And that's, that's quite a combo. That word for power is ability, strength. He's given us a spirit competent for the task. That's really the concept. That power is not the power of calling down fire from heaven, per se. It's, it's, it's the ability to do something. Power or authority. Ability. And in the context, it means God's given us a spirit to empower us to use our gifts. He's given us a spirit to get the job done that he's given us the equipment for. So think through this. God's given you the tools and the equipment you need, and then he's giving you the power, the juice, if you will, to do the job. It's a spirit of power. Romans 15, 13 says it this way. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It takes power to hope. It takes power to believe and have hope. And the power comes through the spirit that God has given us. Not a spirit of cowardice, not a spirit of fear, but of power. Not just power, but love. What's the other reason Timothy's could exercise his gift, concern for the church, concern for Christ, love for other believers. Remember, our gifts are given, not for our own good, not to make much of me, not to build me up, but build you up. You've been given gifts to serve other believers, but if you don't love other believers, that's not a strong motive, is it? If you don't really care about other believers, then who cares? But if you have the ability to perform the task. And if you have a love for those to whom you will serve, you can see how this is heading somewhere. And then self-control or self-discipline. This is from that same word family that Paul made so much of in 1 Timothy, sound-minded, self-controlled. And here's just the focus, the discipline to do it. So when it comes to using our gifts, when it comes to serving, when it comes to exercising what God has given us, he's given us, get this, he's given us the tools, the gifts, He's given us the ability to exercise them. He's given us the love or the motivation to do it, and he's given us the discipline to stay focused and on task. Which really means then we have no excuse if we don't exercise our gifts. We have no excuse if we let our gifts grow cold. So I just want to stop and say a word. How then do you do this, or how do you even know what your gifts are? Um, I, I'd suggest to you, it's, it's a combination of a couple things. What, what do you enjoy doing that benefits the body? What do you do that other people are blessed by? I mean, a good tip to try to figure out what your giftedness is, is when you're serving in the body and other people are blessed by it, and they say, wow, Isla, thank you so much. I was so encouraged. Well, God gave his gifts for the benefit of other people. And when other people are benefited, let's do this math backwards, that might be my gift. 
Another way would be needs. Paul's going to tell Timothy to do the work of an evangelist in chapter 4, quite possibly because Timothy doesn't have that gift, but there's a need in the body, and so you fill it. Um, that's, that's the way you determine your giftedness. What, what, do you, what do you enjoy? What are you passionate about? What are others blessed by? What are, you, what are you encouraged by? Try things out. Try different ministries in the church out. See what you enjoy. See what others are built up and encouraged by, and consider where there's need. Now, that's a great way to figure out your giftedness. And God's gifted us in so many different ways. Um, Pastor Daniel listed some of the lists. There's gifts of administration, gifts of help, gifts of mercy, gifts of teaching, gifts of faith. There's so many different ways God has gifted us. We're uniquely gifted for his body. You've got to figure out what your gift is, and then you've got to use it. The way you stop it from going cold is to exercise it, to make use of it, to, to start doing it. The quickest way to let it go cold and atrophy is just to get too busy or get too nervous or get too scared to use it. Turn, turn it, it's not in your notes, but turn to Ephesians real fast. Ephesians chapter 4. This is my favorite passage when I think of the church, this grand vision of the church working properly. And the church works properly not when the pastors and elders and deacons are doing their jobs. That's not when the church is working properly. Let's, let's see what it looks like for the church to be working properly. Let's pick it up in verse 11, chapter 4. This is speaking of Christ's ascension when he rose on high. He gave gifts to men. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds or pastors and teachers why did he give them? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And, I, and I've made this point before. The work of the ministry belongs to all of us. It belongs to me in so much as I'm a saint, not because I'm a pastor. The leadership is the equipping, teaching force in the church to help and facilitate and train the body to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is all of ours. So he gave them for the, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry which is the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, how mature? I mean, after all, we view ourselves as a solid, mature church. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Which is another way of saying, keep going, right? I hope that no one here is saying, okay, check, done. No, we got a ways to go. And if we're more mature than the next church down the street, which is probably not a helpful way of measuring things, so be it. We've got a long ways to go before we, we pass a measurement where Christ is the, the yardstick, right? So there's this work of ministry, of building up the body to maturity till we look like Jesus. And then he says it negatively, so that we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So this will protect us from doctrinal error. This will protect us from vacillation. But rather, here's verse 15, here it is, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The, the, the ministry we have is speaking the truth in love. Words of loving encouragement. Words of loving instruction. Words of loving rebuke. Words of loving warning. Words of loving mercy and kindness. Look at verse 16. This is just phenomenal. 
Uh, well, back to 15. But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you catch that? How does the body grow up and mature? It only works one way. When each and every part, when each and every joint, when each and every muscle and sinew, which holds it together, is working properly. So I'll say again, rekindle and use your gifts. The, the maturity of the entire church depends on it. It's a sobering concept. Paul's emphatic. Each part has to be working right here. Not most of the parts, not some of the parts, not the key players. Each part. Each part doing its part. Each part serving in its own way. That's when the church builds up. That's when the church matures. That's when the church starts looking more and more like Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's an awesome picture. It's awesome to see it at work. And so I just want to encourage and challenge each one of us here today. Do, do you even know how you're gifted? And are you willing and eager to use your gifts to serve, to build the body up? Don't, don't let your gifts grow cold. Don't let your gifts atrophy. Rekindle your gifts. Don't be afraid. God's spirit will give you the power and the love and the discipline to do it. Don't be afraid. Rekindle your gifts. Secondly, Paul encourages young Timothy not to be ashamed. Be not ashamed. We see that in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. And of course, that's the, that's the danger, right? And fear and shame sort of go together. Shame is that concern of what others will think. Fear is just the concern of what will happen to me. They can go together because what if bad things happen to me because other people think I'm an idiot? Um, I've, I've had that thought run through my head before. Um, <laughs> um, and so he, he presses it on further from fear and cowardice to being ashamed. And these things link together, right? Shame is that feeling of, of, of that bad feeling we have when we, we feel that others, sometimes God, sometimes shame can be a godly thing. I'm ashamed of what I've done. God looking at me must not be pleased with what I did. But probably for us in this context, it's more likely the shame of being concerned what others think of us. And, and the problem here is that he can be ashamed of two things, the testimony of the Lord or other suffering Christians. Now, Paul was not ashamed. You know this passage in Romans 1, verses 16 to 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. But in saying so, he at least indicates there may well be some reasons to. And if you read your New Testament, you know that Paul freely admits in 1 Corinthians that to the Jews it's a stumbling block and to the Greeks it's foolishness. There's an old piece of graffiti that they've discovered in the ruins in Rome that shows a man crucified with a donkey's head and another man prostrate before it. And, oh, good grief, I forget the guy's name, but it names the Roman guy, worships his God. The notion of a crucified Messiah, the notion of a God who died, is foolishness to Greek wisdom. 
It was a complete stumbling block to Jewish thinking who were expecting a triumphant, conquering Messiah. And if you aren't living in a cave, you're well aware that the gospel is foolishness to this age. What? There's only one way? I mean, it's amazing how as time goes on, the world is offended by the gospel. It's just different aspects. Today, it's the exclusivity of the gospel that offends. Jesus loves you as great as long as that's not the only way. There's reasons to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. There's a temptation that we can have to sort of pick and choose what parts of Jesus' teaching that we emphasize. Jesus loves you and have a wonderful plan for your life. Well, as far as it goes, that's true. Jesus hates your sin and will rule over those in hell. You go to Revelation 11, they're, they're suffering in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus is a righteous God who will come to judge the living and the dead. No man knows the hour. Prepare, flee the wrath to come. That's not quite so popular. And so the temptation for us is to pick and choose. Those aren't generally the verses we put on greeting cards, um, right? <laughs> admittedly so, admittedly so. And so you may think, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The question is, are, are we ashamed of parts of the gospel, of the testimony of our Lord? No one has a problem with turn the other cheek. No, that's not even true. I'm sorry. It, what's, what's really interesting is you go to Islamic countries. They love our sexual ethic. What they are offended by is the turning the other cheek. In honor cultures where you do honor killings, this notion of being mistreated and, and turning the other cheek and forgiving your enemy, that's the stumbling block over in the East. Over here, our sex ethic and our morality tend to be the things that set people off. They love the forgive people, the turn the other cheek side of things. There'll always be something in the gospel that people find attractive and something that people are offended by. And so there'll always be a temptation to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed. Don't, don't be quiet. Don't be a jerk, but don't be ashamed. And don't be ashamed of the suffering of other Christians. And that was the real challenge. Paul, we know, was deserted because as he was in jail and his persecution was mounting, well, people are probably thinking, man, if I go and spend some time with the Apostle Paul, then they'll know I'm a Christian and I might get thrown in jail and I got kids after all. And it's easy to see how quickly that rationalization can, can happen. I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews 10. An astounding passage in Hebrews 10 of Christian love, Christian solidarity. Hebrews 10, verse 32. And what the writer of Hebrews does, if you haven't been in Dave Lample's class, is he alternates from warnings. He's concerned that they're not going to finish the course. He's concerned that they may shrink back. And yet it's clear the writer is aware of periods in their walk of faith where they bore some really good fruit. And so he'll warn them with a strong warning, and then he'll encourage them. And he does that exact same thing here. And so in chapter 10, verse 26 to 31, there's a strong warning. Don't go on willfully sinning. Watch out. Our God's a consuming fire. And then he encourages them. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So what's on the table? Public reproach. And affliction, which is probably the two sides, the verbal scorn and possibly the physical attacks. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted 
the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Isn't that amazing? They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Some of their brothers and sisters got arrested and thrown in jail, and they decided, let's go, let's meet with them. And in doing so, they identified themselves as Christians, and maybe they came back from the, the visit to the jail to find their house ransacked, their property taken. And what, what does this text say they did? They rejoiced. That, that is some power that God's Spirit gives, Right? You don't do this in your own flesh. You don't do this naturally. You can only do this through the power that the Holy Spirit gives to equip the task. This is the type of power that God can give us if we'll wrap our heads around serving, not being ashamed, but, but joining with the sufferings of other Christians. It's a truly amazing testimony. Go, to, go to a little further in Hebrews to 13.3. So we have their example, and then we have this command. Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So there's the command. And Paul is calling on Timothy to join in him. Don't be ashamed of Jesus in the gospel. and Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Now I know as you're thinking about joining with Christians who are suffering, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in the news and Facebook about Duck Dynasty and what's happened and to some degree, here's, here's somebody who's being mistreated for his faith. But that's, that's good. But I think what Paul has more in mind is something like this recent report that I got off of Voice of the Martyrs. Because this stuff is going on in the world around us. Widows Clarice and Sarah are still in shock after their husbands, both pastors in the Mombasa region of Kenya, were murdered in separate incidences on October 20th. Clarice's husband, a pastor at Mombasa's Vikwatani Redeemed Gospel Church, was found dead of a gunshot to the head in his church. Clarice told a Voice of the Martyrs worker she believes he was murdered to scare Christians away from the area. Pastor Charles Matol, 41, was found slumped in a chair, a Bible still on his lap, as church leaders came in to prepare for Sunday morning worship services. Now, just imagine if this morning you came here to find the pastor dead. People had terrorized, people had ransacked the building. Because there's a church in Kenya who last month, or a month before, that's what they showed up on Sunday morning to find. His widow recounted that in the months prior to her husband's death, there were times that people would stone, throw stones at the church while they held prayer services. Furthermore, death threats made in the pastor's life were never followed up by the police. So there are places in this world today where it can really cost you something, really something. Clearly, it's caught beginning to cost more and more in America to be, to be an unashamed Christian, but there are places in the world where it can still cost so much more. And not only must we be willing to suffer, that's our next point, but we've got we to not be ashamed of identifying, supporting, encouraging. And I'd encourage you, go to Voice of the Martyrs. They've got a whole tab section that... Uh, how can I help? How can I encourage? How can I pray for these people? How can I even know what's going on? Just, just do a Google search, Voice of the Martyrs. It's a fantastic Christian resource, um, bringing to attention the suffering and the persecution going on in the world from the body of Christ. 
And Paul wants Timothy not to be ashamed both of the gospel, but also not to be ashamed of identifying with and, sh- and joining with Christians so treated. Finally, our final point, share in suffering. So first, he's to rekindle his gift. Second, don't be ashamed. Now share in suffering. We see that clearly in verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Suffering is not something we generally move towards, is it? Most of our life is spent distancing ourselves from suffering. We put air conditioning in our homes because we don't want the discomfort of being hot. We put heaters in our home. We don't want the discomfort of being cold. We spend so much time and so much attention and so much resources on minimizing suffering. And there's, there's something good in that. There's something good in restraining the curse. Medicine is good. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes I think our knee-jerk reaction can be, if there's suffering, then I'm going the other way. And Paul's making it clear as a Christian, that can't be our default position. We're, we're going to learn as we get a little further in this book that all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And so Paul wants him to join in, to co-suffer, to share in suffering. And I want to stop here and make a profound point. Paul says it's for the sake of the gospel. And I think sometimes we can think that suffering for the gospel is purely incidental. It's a incidental, and if you can promote the gospel without suffering, that would be better. But I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches. This point was made profoundly to me in a sermon by John Piper called Doing Missions When Dying is Gain. If you turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Rather, I think, suffering is the means the Lord has chosen primarily to advance his gospel. And suffering then becomes the fuel, the impetus. Or, as the early church said, the, this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul was a strange man. But so were those Hebrew Christians in Hebrews who rejoiced when their property was taken. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now on first blush, this verse appears to be on the borderline of blasphemy. What does Paul mean, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Now, what he certainly does not mean is that Jesus' atoning death on the cross is incomplete. That somehow, there's just a little bit left and Paul's going to finish the job. That's not what he means at all. The only other time this expression is used, fill up what is lacking, is found in Philippians, where Paul, speaking of the emissary that they sent to deliver the money and to deliver the letter, says that he filled up, this is Epaphroditus, Verse 25 of chapter 2, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill, because he was ill near to death. But God had mercy upon him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him to you, therefore, because that you may also rejoice at seeing him, and may I be, that way I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Here it is. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, 
risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service for me. So let's see if we can understand what's going on there in Philippians and see if we can help make that help us understand Colossians. Paul is not indicting some lack or shortfall in the Philippians' love. He's, he's clear in the letter. If you read the letter cover to cover, he's not saying, you love me a fair amount, but you could have loved me a little more. Rather, it's this. The Philippians love Paul, and they want to send love in the form of money to Paul. But the entire church can't pick up and go visit Paul. It's simply impractical. So one man, Epaphroditus, is chosen. They send him a letter, some encouragement, maybe some cookies, and they send him some money. Because if you're in a Roman jail, you don't, you don't get meals unless you have them given to you, brought to you. And so the way that Epaphroditus fills up what is lacking in the Philippians church is he's the delivery mechanism. He's the one who actually brings their gift of love to Paul. That makes sense? So he fills up what's lacking because the one piece missing is some bridge to get from the Philippians to Paul. That's where Epaphroditus comes in. He's the emissary. He's the um, person entrusted with the stewardship of that money to Paul. Back to Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, verse 24, for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is in the church. That is the church. And I think what Paul is saying is this. Christ's finished work on the cross is done. To use the analogy, the gift of money the Philippians had was sufficient. It was complete. Christ's payment, his gospel, his salvation is complete. But what is lacking is Jesus is not walking around on this earth witnessing to people. Jesus is not actively, bodily on this earth delivering that gospel message to people. Rather, he's entrusted that job to us. In that sense, we become like Epaphroditus um, who delivers the messenger who brings the gift. It's not his money, someone else's money, but he brings it to Paul. We take this gospel, this suffering of Christ that we don't contribute to, and we bring it to people, and Paul does that through his suffering. Paul links in Colossians and in many other passages suffering with the way the gospel is advanced. Paul says there's an amount of suffering that needs to be done as the gospel goes out, and I'm doing my part to fill that up. And in Piper unpacking this, he, he gives an illustration that I found helpful. He tells of a missionary, an Indian missionary, one of those sort of itinerant evangelists. He's got no shoes, he's got a walking stick, and he's going from village to village in India sharing the gospel. And he gets to one town, and he goes in, and he's tired, and he's weary, and he gets to the center of town, and he begins to preach the gospel, and the people laugh at him, and they scoff at him, and they drive him out of town, and he leaves the town, and he goes out a mile or so, and he sits down under a tree, utterly discouraged, lays down, and goes to sleep. When he wakes up, he finds that the town has gathered around him in that tree, and at first he's frightened, have they come to finish the job? Have they come to put me to death? But as they communicate with him, what they say to him is this. We came out here to see what type of man you were. And when we saw the blisters on your feet, we knew that you were a holy man. And we, and we want to hear what you have to say again. See, the world isn't impressed when I say, yay, Jesus, drawing my BMW. That doesn't impress anybody. The world is impressed when we rejoice in Christ through our suffering. That's when we put the glory of God on display because what we're saying is, I've got something far better. So yes, you can take my car and yes, you can take my job and yes, you can take my home and my health, 
But you can't shake my joy. You can't shake my confidence. You can't shake my courage. Because what I have, you can't take. Moth and rust don't destroy what I have. And it makes God look big and glorious and satisfying. So Paul's calling on Timothy, don't don't shrink back. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. But rather, for the sake of the gospel, share in suffering. That doesn't mean you need to go be a, a masochist and just look for trouble. It will find you well enough on its own. But when it comes, what did Jesus tell the disciples what to do when people speak ill of you? What did he tell them to do? All men will speak. All man reveals against you. What are you to do in that day? You're going to pray for them. What does he say specifically to do in that day? Rejoice. For great is your reward in heaven, right? Right. Rejoice. What do the Hebrew Christians do when their property was taken? They... Rejoiced. What does Paul say in Colossians 1? I rejoice in my sufferings. And you can see them make the sense of that because if you know that your suffering is accomplishing good, if you know your suffering is, is accomplishing the advancement of the gospel, then there is a reason to take joy in it. It's not some masochistic enjoy pain, but rather know that the Lord will use your suffering. He will use your mistreatment. He will use your persecution to advance his gospel, and you can take joy in that. And that's the motivation Paul gives Timothy to share with him in suffering for. It's a very anti-American, very anti-rational mindset because we're hardwired to move away from it. We're hardwired to get far from it. And Paul's saying there are circumstances, especially when the gospel's at stake, move on in there and share with those in it. Join with them. Join with them for the sake of the gospel. Well, I've alluded to this earlier, but how do you do that? Because that is counterhuman. That is counterintuitive. It's counter all that's in me naturally. Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't leave Timothy hanging. He says, share in suffering, 2 Timothy 1 for the gospel, by the power of God. And he's already told us where that power comes from in this context, the Holy Spirit. Spirit not of fear, but of power. How do you do this? Through God's power, not your own. That's why when I marvel at what happened to those Hebrew Christians, I'm not marveling at them. I'm marveling at the power of God displayed through them. How on earth do you rejoice when you come back from a visit to the prison to find your property ransacked and you get a beating and you get attacked? It's, it's the power of God. It's, it's not my power. Certainly not. It's God's power. And that power is promised. So if, if you're willing, if I'm willing to, to say, okay, God, if it's clear that it's about the testimony of Jesus, if it's clear that it's about other believers, if it's clear that it's about the gospel, then I'm willing to suffer. I'm not going to look for it, but I'm willing. If you bring it into my life, I won't move away from it. What Paul's telling Timothy is God's Spirit's going to give you the power and the love to do it. You don't have to muster it up on your own. If you're sitting here saying, I can't, I can't imagine that. The first time I see anything frightening, I run the other way. That's fine. God promises to give you the juice, to give you the strength. We just got to wrap our heads around, okay, okay, when it's for the gospel, when it's for the testimony of Christ, when it's to partner with other believers, then if the Lord brings it, I will join in with it. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to do. It's a hard word in our natural ears, and yet it is a powerful and beautiful word. It calls us to live a very countercultural, supernatural way, and I think this is part of what it means that by our love, they'll know that we're Christians. 
The world isn't terribly impressed by our love when we're just sort of, you know, doing nice things with our nice middle-class lives. But when we're suffering, when we're rejoicing in that, when we're partnering with other people, when we're not counting the reproach of man as, as an evil thing, but rather rejoicing, I, I think that's going to impress people. So we've got to rekindle our gifts and serve. We've got to fight against being ashamed, and we've got to be willing to share in suffering. Now, Paul's going to go on in the next passage, and I just want to give you a taste the next week because he gives Timothy a lot more encouragement in the verses to come. And I just want you to just take a look at these 10 and 11 with me real fast, and then we'll, we'll close. Sorry, 9 and 10. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If you found this word hard, come back next week. We're going to give some more encouragement, some more power to look at the gospel. We're going to look at God's love of you before the ages began. And hopefully we're going to gain some confidence in using our gifts, in moving away from shame and fear, but courageously into being willing to suffer for the gospel, for the testimony of Jesus Christ, and to unite with other believers. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. And we just pray that you would give us the strength and the grace to accept what you have said. But not by our own power, not by our own strength, but by your strength and power. By your spirit, with your gifts, Lord, let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus. Let us not be ashamed of other Christians as they suffer. Let us join with them, partner with them, and count it as, as a grace when we suffer reproach for your name's sake. Lord God, that, that is not an easy thing. So Lord, let your spirit fill us, move us, control us. Give us the mind of Christ. Give us your strength and power and love Give us self-discipline so that we can do this, so that your body will be built up when every joint is doing its job, and so that the world will know that you are the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. In Jesus' name, amen.